0: Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schirmer Podcast. Happy New Year, everyone. I want to welcome back any regular or semi-regular listeners. As I always say, there's a lot of podcasts out there, so thanks for choosing to stick with me and and thanks for hanging out each week. I also want to send a big welcome to any new listeners out there who are listening in for the first time. Uh, Thanks for expanding the listening audience and thinking maybe there's something here for you. I'm going to do my best to continue to bring you what I think is quality content each week, so... Um, You can always give me feedback on that, email me, contact me, etc. But I really appreciate you. Uh, I'm looking forward to a bigger and better 2021. Um, I think we all are. I know for many of you today is back to work day. Uh, Normally, I would say happy back to work day. But I know that for many of us, and again, this depends on the situation with COVID in your particular jurisdiction. I know there's a lot of anxiousness and a lot of nervousness about today and heading back to work after the break. So. I wish you all of the best uh, here. I'm on the balance feeling rather optimistic about 2021, but I do understand how people are feeling at this point. Um, So take it day by day and and we'll see how things play out. Quick update on my fantasy football life, (laughs) which ended uh, rather quickly. Uh, Feeling very confident on December 14th about my first round playoff matchup, but it did not work out. I lost that game and was knocked out of the playoffs Nothing more to say. It all ended quite abruptly and quite disappointingly. So, no more fantasy football updates until the fall, uh, when we, you know, crank things up again. uh, And hopefully, I'll have more success in the playoffs next year. Today is a bit of an anomaly, but it's something I had planned to do from time to time at certain points. And that is a solo podcast today. It's just me. There's no interview guest. We'll get back to. Uh, interview guests starting next week and I'll share with you at the end of the podcast who my guest will be next week But it's just me and before I get to what our topics are going to be today I just wanted to remind you of the YouTube channel associated with the podcast Tom Schirmer podcast has a YouTube channel Uh, There are full episodes that are posted there But the video versions of the interviews are also posted there two or three weeks after the podcast goes live And I think those video interviews are are quite good for PD sessions. You know, if you hear something that one of the guests talks talks about, you know, maybe you you heard something that Cassandra said about collaborative common assessments, or it was something Anthony Muhammad said about racial equity, or uh, maybe, you know, when it comes to innovation, you heard Katie Martin talk about learner-centered innovation, you thought this would be a great clip to stimulate some dialogue amongst colleagues. You know, I would really encourage you to subscribe to the YouTube channel. You'll get updates when content is posted there uh, and you can check out the videos uh, on that channel. I'm also hoping to add some shorter kind of single topic, quick hitter kind of videos uh, this year as well to kind of expand uh, what's on the YouTube channel. So again, just t- you know, keep an eye on that. Uh, I'm hoping to, to bring some different and newer content uh, to that channel as well. Uh, in today's pod, in the middle segment, I'm going to explore and talk about five leadership lessons that I've learned over the years. They're not necessarily my top five or the five most important, but they are just five leadership lessons that I've that I've learned over the years. And really, a lot of it just comes from my personal experience and sharing some things that that worked for me, and and hopefully they can work for you as well. In Assessment Corner, I received a question about assessing collaboration and how that fits in with group scores and group projects and all of that, so I'm going to dig into that topic as well uh, toward the end of the podcast. So anyway, that's the plan for today, Uh, a little solo uh, project this week, uh, getting back to our regular program next week. Really appreciate you listening in, Uh, lots to get to, so let's get to it. Coming up five leadership lessons learned. But first, don't at me. And well, you probably won't. Because I want to open this week, and 2021 for that matter, with a celebration of you. Now I've got time to get back to opinions and rants and all of those things which typically characterize this opening segment. And we'll get to that another time. But today, I want to celebrate you. As 2020 came to a close, many of you hit the halfway mark of the school year. Now, for some of you, the actual halfway mark won't hit until January, since for you, the school year doesn't finish until June, but you get the point. We're kind of halfway through this school year. And you've made it this far. Has it been tough? Absolutely. Has it been stressful? No doubt. Did some of you contract and survive COVID? Probably. Did some of our colleagues leave the profession entirely? I'm sure they did. And did we lose some of our colleagues? Sadly, we probably did. This school year has been formidable. Yes, last spring was too, but it was more of an acute situation that maybe had a little bit of novelty to it and many schools and teachers had had enough face-to-face instruction to piece together last school year. This year, Uh, Though many schools are face-to-face, and many, of course, are not, it feels just as stressful, Uh, maybe more so since last year, at least in North America and in the Northern Hemisphere, you know, we were going from winter to spring, and so the weather kept improving, and being outside was more possible, and there was a sort of there was a kind of adrenaline to the quarantine at least at first. I'm not saying it was a positive, but it was there was this kind of novelty or adrenaline to it now on the on the other side, it was probably scarier in some ways because we collectively knew less about what covid was um, but again, there was that uniqueness to it. but it's wearing on people. I'm sure you can see it. I can see it. You can feel it, and with the onset of winter and the busyness of the holidays and the collective disappointments that have come with our inability to see so many of our family members over the holidays, this first half of the year has been unlike anything I've ever seen in my lifetime, and I'm sure it has for you too. I mean, that's easy to say about a -a once-in-a-century pandemic. I don't work in a school system anymore, so I don't know firsthand what it has been like for so many of you. I rely on, you know, friends and colleagues and connections on social media, people who can keep me informed as to what it's been like in a variety of settings, uh, you know, literally around the world. And I can only imagine how hard this has been for you. And while the nuances might vary ever so slightly, the common denominator is that this has been arguably the most challenging time to be an educator in at least a century, if not ever. And as 2020 came to a close, There's also the predictable array of year-end blog posts and tweets and videos and several of them I noticed making references to the legacy of COVID and what many educators and authors are referring to as the legacy or the the new norms that the pandemic has brought in. And my first reaction was, uh, isn't it a little early to be talking about legacy? Uh, Yes, there have been some major breakthroughs with vaccines and and uh, you know some other jurisdictions are experiencing a drop in, in or at least a leveling off of COVID cases but we're still in the middle of the pandemic and in many places the pandemic is worsening so my gut reaction to all of these posts was can we maybe just slow down with the whole here's what the pandemic has taught us posts because we're all still living it you know it's one thing to talk about how to deal with it now You know strategies practices things like that but it's another to start pontificating about legacy i mean these pithy inspirational quotes i see are not what's needed right now when i see them i think you're not inspiring in the face of a pandemic you're completely out of touch i'm going to use one of my least favorite expressions and i honestly can't believe i'm saying this aloud but despite the fact that there is reason for optimism we are nowhere near out of the woods yet. Man, I have to tell you, I despise that expression. Because, the reason is because it's just so parental and, and so arrogant. Yeah, it, I, yes, it's arrogant. When, when do people use that expression? Well, it's usually when someone offers a hint of optimism. Right? Normally that expression of that optimism that people express comes nowhere near to stating that everything is resolved, just that things are better, right? So why do they say it? Well, they say it to sound smart or profound. Let's go back. Remember episode one? I reminded you of uh, Teresa Amonville's quote from 1983. She said, quote, only pessimism sounds profound. Optimism sounds superficial, end quote. So there you have it. Any expression of optimism provides the opportunity for someone else to swoop in, give you that parental glance over the top of their reading glasses, and save the day with the we're not out of the woods yet. So profound. Cue the eye roll. Hey Tom, how are you feeling today? Oh, I'm feeling better. Well, you're not out of the woods yet. Uh, I know that. Thanks. I said I'm better. I didn't say I was healed. Am I not even allowed to have better before you swoop in with your, honestly? (laughs) I hate that expression. But when it comes to COVID, say it with me, people. We're not out of the woods yet. (laughs) But there is reason for optimism and reason to celebrate. I mean, you've heard this expression before, celebrate how far you've come not how far you have to go. I want to celebrate you. Why? Well, first, because you deserve it. But also because many in the general public never miss an opportunity to take shots at our profession. I'm not saying everyone, of course, as many are very supportive. But there are enough on the other side of that ledger to notice. So, to paraphrase Hillel the Elder, who was the first century Jewish leader and scholar, he said, If not me, then who? If not now, then when. Now the actual quote is, quote, if I am not for myself, who will be for me? If I am only for myself, what am I? If not now, when? End quote. Now that quote has been misattributed so many times over the years, but uh, to to different political leaders, etc. But again, that's You know, if not me, then who? And if not now, when? Now, side note, Hillel the Elder is also someone who popularized the ethic of reciprocity, or what's more commonly referred to as the golden rule. That was one of the essential foundations for understanding the Torah. And it was one of the most important messages he brought forth in his teachings. So anyway, I want to celebrate you, because if not me, then who? And if not now, then when? There is reason for optimism. Now, will things get worse before they get better? Maybe. I don't know what's in store for you or your community or your jurisdiction, et cetera. But we will get through this because we've got ourselves here. You are living proof of the resiliency and the sheer determination educators have shown to put students first. You are living proof of what it means to show courage, to be fearful, but to do it anyway. In episode one, I also talked about finding the balance between fear and complacency, right? The lived experience versus the described experience. Your fear is real, but don't let it own you. Be diligent, but try to balance your fear, if for no other reason than to protect yourself because fear has actually been proven to weaken our immune systems. And the last thing you need right now is a weaker immune system. Celebrate the way you've dug deep and found ways to deepen the relationships you have with your students. Celebrate how you've prioritized their emotional well-being and use the pandemic to maybe reset your priorities around what truly matters. Celebrate how you continue to inspire learners with interesting, engaging opportunities to explore both what interests them as well as to explore themselves as learners and as people. And... Side note, I hope we can put a cork in all this talk about learning loss, or kids falling behind, or the slide, or whatever people are saying. Falling behind what? Some mythological scope and sequence? I mean, honestly, who cares? This is a global pandemic. Emphasis on the global. Who exactly are they falling behind? Where is this imaginary school where teachers and students are diabolically using the pandemic to their academic advantage to conquer the world of college applications? When things get back to normal, and they will, I just hope we don't create this collective urgency to get everyone quote-unquote caught up. Just keep them learning. Keep them inspired. Keep focused on them. But So they didn't do your Peru unit, honestly who cares? Focus on what really matters and celebrate what you have learned about yourself and our craft during this pandemic. I want to celebrate you because you stepped up and have been everything society needs from our profession. I know there have been challenges in specific jurisdictions and there have been confrontations in acute situations. I get that. But what I so admire about educators right now is how we can almost instantly put our focus on our students and do what's best for them, to care for them, to go the extra mile for them, even when it might not always be what's in the best interest of us. Now, those outside of education just don't understand that being an educator is not what we do. It's who we are. So in this moment, I celebrate who you are and all that you've done so far through this pandemic. Yes, we have a ways to go. But be proud of yourself, because who you are professionally is pretty extraordinary. Okay, five leadership lessons learned. Now, these are five lessons. They are not my top five. They are not the five most important. Just five, five leadership lessons. Also, these are lessons that I have learned. They are from personal experience. Uh, It's possible that you had an opposite experience with any or all of the ideas I'm about to share, no problem. That's that's part of our own personal growth. I've made many mistakes in leadership, that's for sure. So let's get that right. Uh, We all do. And one of my favorite expressions, of course, is experience comes from poor judgment. So when you make mistakes in leadership, that's where your professional growth comes from. So many of these lessons I've learned the hard way, which means my mistakes have led to these epiphanies. I did the opposite and then learned from that. So these five takeaways of success are in the context within which I've been either in a leadership position by title or by responsibility. And these first five that I'm gonna share today are really from a school-based leadership perspective. So these are really primarily lessons for principals and assistant principals, et cetera. And I'm gonna focus a little bit on change. So these are five lessons learned. Let's go. Lesson number one, is that building capacity begins with you. I have never bought into this whole, you know, I just empower people and get out of the way kind of leadership style. Now, of course, I believe in empowerment and shared leadership, but administrators have to know, if we're going to be instructional leaders, we have to know what we're talking about if we're going to lead anything with any kind of credibility. Now, you don't have to be the expert in the school, and after a short while, you probably shouldn't be but you need to know enough to have credible conversations with those who are are attempting to implement the new ideas that we're all discussing. You know, nothing says leadership than when you exemplify lifelong learning and begin to understand the intricacies of whatever we're all trying to implement and whatever the focus is for the school. Now, my assessment journey, as many of you know, began in my own classroom from that perspective when I had a you know, part-time teaching responsibility um, as a vice-principal in a middle school, I had that teaching responsibility and that allowed me to put some ideas into practice firsthand in the class I was teaching. But even if you don't have teaching responsibility, you have your experience and you have an area of expertise, so you can easily partner up and work with some early adopters to make sure that you fully understand, with a good level of detail, you fully understand how to put theory into practice. Now again, Yes, some administrators can easily fall out of touch with the classroom, but the vast majority I know have not and do not. Um, the whole, you know, oh, what do you know? You're not in the classroom anymore is, is really just, to me, uh, more often than not, just an excuse to try to discredit the person uh, on the other side of that conversation. Um, you know, you can kind of say something like that to anyone. Uh, You know, you've never taught math before, you've never taught sixth grade before, you've never been a high school teacher before, you've never taught on our side of the town, or so on and so forth. I mean, there's always something to say to somebody. Many of my closest friends are now administrators, and in all honesty, they were some of the best teachers I've ever worked with. Um, Yes, you can forget um, what it's like to be in the classroom, but so many more administrators I know have not forgotten and still have their expertise and their experience. So, because you can forget, do what you can to keep yourself as close to the change as possible. Okay? So, if that means teaming up with somebody, then team up with them. You know, do it. Have at least some firsthand knowledge or understanding because that will go a long way in terms of building credibility and you authentically having empathy for how hard it is to implement some new ideas. So again, building capacity begins with you as leaders. We have to know what we're talking about. This idea that I just step aside and let everybody run with it. We know that administrators have to be involved in change, in a more authentic way, and we have to take ownership of that because there are some decisions that have to be made. Sometimes they are budgetary decisions. Sometimes they are about prioritization around the distribution of, of, you know, professional learning funds or uh, different goals or visions that are connected to what the district is doing. So the idea of just getting out of the way and not knowing anything about some of your top priorities, to me, is inexcusable. So as a leader, the capacity begins with you. You have to know what you're talking about. Lesson number two is explain your no. That's N-O. This one's about consultation. When you consult people, it can be a very empowering and inclusive process. And it's something where people can really feel as if they are contributing to the collective. However, it is also a process that can quickly become very superficial. In any consultation process, it is critical that leaders explain they're no. That means you explain why you didn't choose a certain course of direction, why you said no to certain input. Uh, you know, it's, it's so easy for consultation to become this kind of going through the motions process where people start to feel it's just leaders giving lip service to the whole idea of consultation. You know, what's worse than not consulting all, at all is the inauthentic effort to give the appearance of consultation. So don't consult people unless you are authentically open to others' perspectives. And once you are open to others' perspectives, you don't have to take every piece of advice given to you. I mean, that would be impossible. Now, on the other side of that, just side note, if you are being consulted, um, let's not think that a leader is always going to do what you want or what you say. Uh, you know, you, you can't just say when when a leader doesn't do what you've said or what your input was. You can't say, well, they're not listening to us. Well, okay, I understand that. But that phrase often gets used, but it's actually code for, you know, they're not doing what I want. Uh, they are hearing you, but but they're not doing what you say or what you want. So we have to be careful that when we're being consulted, we don't just assume that because I'm being consulted, that leadership is just going to follow with what we say all the time. Um, you know, leaders have to explain the limitations and the parameters or whatever the reason was but you still have to explain why you didn't take someone's advice or a group's advice again you don't have to give do that to every single individual but it, at least explain why you chose what you chose and why you chose the direction you chose etc uh, look there are times where there are certain limitations whether they be you know state or provincial policies they could be district policies um, contextual norms that drive you know a certain course of action. There are often limitations. I mean, the the best case scenario is for a leader to outline the parameters of the limitations ahead of the consultation process, so that people don't feel like they're wasting their time giving you input, and then you come back at them saying, "Well, we couldn't do that because of these policies or regulations." Well, you could have told us that ahead of time, right? So. It's better to outline and make sure that everybody understands the limitations of the restrictions of what's ahead of them before you ask them for their input. Um, If you want people to know your consultation is authentic, if you want them to feel valued and that you're not just giving the appearance of consultation, but you're truly trying to create a a consultative kind of process and, and, and an opportunity for people to give input, then you have to explain your no you have to explain why you chose not to take certain pieces of advice, because one, they'll know then that you actually considered it, and two, they'll know that there is a thoughtful reason behind why you chose the course of action that you did or why the team decided to go in a certain direction. So consultation is empowering. Consultation can be very uh, inclusive, but it can also go sideways very quickly. And so from my perspective, anytime you authentically ask for others' input, you owe them an explanation as to why you didn't choose to take their advice and why you went in the direction that you did. Number three, sweat the small stuff because little things can actually be big things. Now, I don't mean sweat the small stuff as in get yourself all bent out of shape uh, over the smallest little things. But what I mean is... This one's really about how the smallest moves can actually have the biggest impact. And you never know when those moments are going to arrive. You never know when they're going to occur. So there really are no small moments. Uh, every moment in leadership really is a big moment because you don't know how that moment is going to impact other people. So I learned this lesson in what many would probably think would be a throwaway moment, uh uh, you know, something that just occurred in the course of a day, something that's not that big a deal. And and truly, it isn't that big a deal. But again, you know, leadership isn't about what you see on TV or in the movies. Leadership is about those day-to-day actions that demonstrate. And this sort of experience taught me that it's the smallest things, it's the day-to-day things that can really make the biggest difference for people. So I'm going back to 2003 when I was a vice-principal of a new middle school, i just moved to this brand new middle school in our district, and I had just come from a previous four-year stint in a different middle school in the district, and our district was converting to a middle school model, so this was the last school. So one of the reasons I had been transferred there is because of my experience in the previous school, The principal of this new middle school had had uh, he's an experienced educator, experienced administrator, but had never worked under a middle school model. So we came together and we I think we made a a pretty good team. And as a result of that, he afforded me, uh, you know, pretty prominent leadership roles in the way that things were rolling out in that first year. And I was really appreciative of that. Um, So this is a new staff. Uh, Some of the staff were holdovers from the junior high That was converting into a middle school, but many of the staff had come from around the district and it was a a mix kind of 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 staff. So, okay, so it's, it's the the day before opening day, and we're going over the opening day schedule, which typically was a half day schedule in in our district and and mostly across the province. It's a half day, uh, half day for students and half day of teaching for teachers. And then we had, you know, staff meetings and things in the afternoon. So in the old school, we had a mini schedule for that first half day. So we would run an entire, what we called a day one schedule. We had day one and day two. We would run through all of their day one classes in a kind of mini condensed schedule. So they probably had, you know, 30 to 40 minutes. Uh, well, not even, they, you know, less than that uh, with, with each of their teachers. So I just thought, you know, that's what we did at the old school. This is what we'll do in the, no, in the new school. So let's just roll with that, right? Okay, so we're in the staff meeting the day before opening day. And one of the more veteran teachers on our staff, uh, who had come from another school, so he had, was not a holdover and we'd never worked together, raises his hand and makes a suggestion. He says, can we change the schedule, the opening day schedule, so that we as core teachers uh, have our homeroom class for the entire morning to kind of get them situated to, to the school? Um, so, you know, again, a little bit of background on this new school. None of the students had ever attended this school before because this was a, uh, grades eight through 10 junior high that was now converting to a middle school. So the eighth graders from the previous year were off to high school. So this was an entirely new group of students coming to our school. None of them had actually ever been in this school before, uh, because the youngest students were off to high schools from the previous year. So it was a new staff, new students, you know, everything was new. So he asked the question, uh, you know, could could we just have our students for the full kind of three hours and a bit? We had a nutrition break built into that schedule. But he said, can we just have our students for the entire morning? And I thought to myself, well, I don't see why not. And it's not a big deal. I, I, I think, you know, I don't see why that's problematic. That was my response. But I looked over at Don, who was the principal, because, again, you know, as much as he afforded me uh, leadership opportunities, uh, his reaction, of course, was important. Listen, as, as much leeway as I as I was given, uh, I was not the principal of the school and I know my role. And therefore, you know, this is something that the principal has to approve. You know, Don looks at me. No big deal. And uh, so then we we talked to the French and the, the PE teachers because in our school they were specialists. And if we let the students, um, you know, be with their homeroom class the entire time. Uh, then those teachers wouldn't see any students, uh, in that morning. Um, they said, yeah, no big deal. Uh, it's not long enough for us to do much with them anyway in those class periods. Okay. We check with the exploratory teachers. Uh, how about you guys? What do you think? And, uh, same thing. No, we're good. It's not really long enough. And, and of course some of those teachers taught other classes, but, uh, no big deal. So we look around the room and we're all like, yeah, no, let's do it. And, uh, So it's done, and I just said to the staff that uh, I'll send a revised schedule after we adjourn this meeting. You'll have it in your email within, you know, 15 minutes of finishing the meeting. No big deal. We'll schedule the break. Um, All done. No big deal. And honestly, I thought nothing of it after that meeting uh, and probably would have left the meeting uh, not even having remembered this entire experience, except for when I was about to walk out. So I'm about to walk out of the meeting. We are in the library. And the teacher who made the original request and another teacher wanted to speak to me and they pulled me aside. And I'm like, OK, so what's up? And they proceeded to tell me that um, we want to just tell you how much we appreciated how you handled that request. And I'm thinking to myself, this isn't that big a deal. Like, I don't, I don't get what the big deal is. Um, but they proceeded to tell me that you know we haven't always had that experience in the past with administration, and we appreciated knowing that you and Don are open to making adjustments et cetera and listening to us and listening to our input and and that you know we we have a say and at the time like I said I, I remember thinking to myself this is a pretty low bar like I mean I can meet this uh, level of expectation no problem uh, I can listen that's not that hard but um, but I can tell you upon further reflection, it really caught my attention because it's sometimes, often, I should say, those little things. I mean, changing the schedule took all of five minutes front to back, sent an email, no big deal. The students are not are none the wiser. But to those two, and, and I think to the majority of the staff, it made a huge difference. And, you know, it kind of surprised me that something that I thought was just a throwaway moment, really did make a, a big difference. It made a huge difference to, to them and, and feeling heard. It wasn't the actual act of changing the schedule. It was the context. It was it was the relationship that was being forged. I mean, those two teachers, who, who I only knew superficially, right? They were in the same district, but we had never worked together before. We just had worked at both at the middle school level. So we knew each other and were friendly with each other, but didn't really know each other. To those two teachers, it 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 meant a lot to them. And look, that's just one example. But it was such a reminder to me that, that every small moment really isn't a small moment. It can be a big moment. Uh, not from a stress yourself out and overthink every moment kind of perspective. That's, of course, not what I mean. But what I mean is... The idea that what might seem small to you could be huge for other people. So there are no throwaway moments. Every moment is an opportunity for you to make a a small, medium, or large difference in the lives of the people you work with. And so again, the point here is that sweat the little things, the small stuff, because those little things can often become big things. Okay, number four, prioritize practicality. Now, this isn't a lesson that I learned so much from making mistakes as it was a lesson I learned in real time, just as things unfolded. You know, orthodoxy is easy. I often say to people, you know, orthodoxy, preaching orthodoxy of anything is easy But teachers don't really live in the orthodoxy of very much. And from a keynote stage, for example, it's easy for me to get on stage and just, you know, preach orthodoxy at people and shame them if they don't do that. And to me, that's just the wrong way to approach uh, all of this work to begin with. But educators are often facing contextual norms, policies, history, idiosyncrasies, all these different things that make the seamless implementation of any ideal uh, challenging. Sometimes moving forward means, you know, taking steps toward the goal, but but not achieving perfection or achieving the orthodoxy. And I think it's important to always remember that. You see this a lot in assessment and especially in grading, where people have this ideal of moving towards, say, standards-based grading, but there's always some compromise that needs to be made. The whole premise behind uh, the book I wrote, Grading from the Inside Out, was you know the idea of developing a standards-based mindset is about compromise it's about shifting to sound grading practices even in a context that still you know requires certain things so in the in in the in the case of my experience it was the fact that our province dictated uh percentage-based grades and we were at one of the high schools i worked at we were kind of faced with this you know pivotal moment where we had to ask ourselves because we're required to report percentage-based grades, is, does that mean there's nothing we can do? Or can we change sort of the engine that produces those grades? And that's that really was the genesis of the mindset idea, the idea of change how you think about grades. Uh, you can You can begin to shift some things, even if you don't have control over the end product, which is the reporting structure or the report card or what have you. And almost every jurisdiction has some uh parameter or policy that serves as a a restrictor you know rarely are things implemented sort of all or nothing i know that many present ideas that way and and often it's important to sort of illustrate to people what the nth degree of a new process or a new idea would look like Um, and and but thinking about the immediate or short-term wins that's usually what adds up to the big change. It's not sort of an all or nothing, you have to go all in, you have to be fully committed. It's often those immediate and short-term wins that add up to becoming a big change. So a lot of times the right question, I think, is what can we do in the face of some of the the structures or policies or uh, practices that we might be facing? Like, I think it's critical that we always look for what I call acceptable alternatives or sometimes I refer to them as imperfect solutions to an already imperfect system or circumstance. Right. So in the case of percentage based grades, there are ways that you navigate through that with a certain mindset that allows you to, in the end, still report on percentage based grades. But maybe you're beginning to examine evidence of student learning on an individual Task basis, you're you're focused on levels of proficiency along a a rubric, and then doing some sort of conversion that is not going to be perfect, but it's going to at least be a a, you know kind of a simulation of of where that student would be, and you're you're trying to to make the best of it. So you know for me, acceptable alternatives are are their practices that find the sweet spot between the status quo, which is obviously an undesirable, and the orthodoxy, which is obviously the desirable outcome, right? And I think that really helps with people who are hesitant to make changes. They, they can feel more comfortable because you're asking them to take a step or two forward. You're not asking them to go all in, but you're asking them to sort of move forward at a more comfortable pace. And it helps them be more comfortable with the prospect of change while at least maintaining some of the core of what is the desirable outcome of the change. Um, you know there are ways to at least move ahead even if it's slowly and so in the case of grading again uh, just because you have a percentage based grade book that is dictated say by your district or by your state or by your county or what, whatever the structure might be it doesn't mean there aren't ways to revamp the assessment practices that produce those grades right so it's important to think about what are the practical ways in which we can create some immediate or short-term wins along our pathway to making a a larger change happen. Now, additionally, or uh, tangentially to this, when you think about these immediate or short-term wins, I also want to say, so this might be 4A, which is stop comparing your school to other schools or other districts or whatever. These, you know, this, you know, the idea that they're ahead of us or we're behind them and district staff you have to stop sort of inferring uh, about these arbitrary ideas of who's ahead and who's behind and who's taking longer Um, you are where you're you are and your context is often going to dictate um, you know the pace of change and and the uniqueness of your context is going to make a big difference so my advice to people is often don't get stuck on the orthodoxy have have the orthodoxy of the ideal as your target, for sure, but think about, you know how we can create those short-term wins with some acceptable alternatives. And, and stop thinking that you are less than because the orthodoxy isn't achieved in one year or six months or whatever arbitrary pace someone else thinks you should be be doing it. You know, operationalizing things within your context is the priority. And as long as we don't get complacent, as long as we don't stay stuck, um, the pace is the pace and you know that, you know, we don't want good enough to just be good enough. We want to keep moving forward, but we have to make sure that the pace is palatable for people, that people understand that that we're, we're trying to achieve some short term and some immediate wins and we're not creating a, that sense of panic. Right. We want to make sure that people understand that we understand things are going to take time. So we can be on the right track and that will eventually get there and we want to get to as close to the orthodoxy as possible, but we want practicality. We want teachers to be able to act immediately and and make some small, medium, or large changes, just things that they can do to impact uh, and at least illustrate that they are moving forward. So any way that you can help teachers, and this goes back to number one, right? So if you know what you're talking about, if you've built your capacity, you will be probably more able to give others a vision of what some practical sort of first steps forward might look like. It might not be perfect. It may even, I suppose, contradict or or uh, you know, not be ideal in comparison to what you're hoping for, but at least it's a step or two forward that makes people feel a little bit more comfortable about the change. And finally, number five is balance, urgency, and patience. Now, there are many out there who talk about the need for urgency when it comes to change. Uh, John Cotter especially comes to mind when he talks about the eight steps for transforming an organization. He often says that one of the first things you need to do in an organization, uh, and this has more to do with uh, private sector industry than it does necessarily schools but he talks about you need to create a sense of urgency but and i and i agree with that but i think within the school context especially when it comes to hot button issues you know things that you're trying to change that may be somewhat controversial again going back to things like grading um but but it could be many other things that that may be uh, a source of tension amongst the, the the staff i think it's important to balance both the urgency and the patience uh, change can be daunting, uh, which means the urgency, which can be a positive, uh, can easily become panic. And now that urgency sort of reaches that tipping point, and people now feel panicked about the change. So urgency, balanced with patience, is for me the the, the most appropriate way to sort of go about about change. And for me, the the phrasing that I often use is urgency for the ideas. But patience with people. Um, People need time. People need time to understand what the change looks like. Now, listen, obviously, we're not talking about things that are mandated, things that are about, you know, legality, things that are policies that have been passed by governments, etc. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about change of choice, where we're deciding to, to go in a different direction, and we know it's compelling, but we also know that it's gonna take some time for people to understand. So people need time, and you know, the urgency is the compelling case. We make the compelling case, and through the urgency, we don't always wanna look at urgency as a bad thing, because urgency can be about energizing people. It can be about you know the excitement about what the change is going to bring. So, I don't want you to think of urgency as just sort of having this negative connotation because urgency can can equal excitement and and people can get really get excited about the potential change. So, that's the compelling case for why now is the right time to to make a move or to to move forward or or to act upon that which we are wanting to implement. But, we have to remember that there are many of our colleagues who are going to have to unlearn some things. Um, and, and maybe some have to unlearn a lot of things. I don't know, so, so how do you do this? Uh, well, the one way that I've found over the years that helped me understand the balance between urgency and patience was to gauge the size of the audience. The larger the audience, the more I emphasized urgency. So if we were at a whole staff meeting and we were talking about the need to move on something, then urgency would be overwhelmingly emphasized. It would be about the excitement, the need, uh, where is this coming from, why this is going to make things better for students, why this is a more efficient and effective way for teachers. All of that would sort of come out in the larger context, right? So the size of the audience would would dictate if we were in a large group, uh, the urgency would be emphasized. Talking to an individual person, now we have to be patient. Okay, patience with people. So when individuals come to you and they start asking questions or they seem to not understand the change or they they aren't quite clear on what this would look like in their classroom or how it might play out, you know, being patient, listening to them, empathizing with them, asking them the right questions, um, you know, again, tangentially, maybe this is 5A, but asking the right questions versus giving the answers is something that I also learned, which is just continuing to ask clarifying questions about where they are in the process and and how they're feeling about the change and what what specifically are they challenged with and what can I do to help clarify some things. So if I was meeting with a department, say, which is a kind of mid-sized group, then there'd be a little bit of both, right? A little bit of urgency, but also some contextual patience for understanding where the science department is or where the sixth grade team is or where the third grade team is or something like that. The more Personalize the audience; the more personalized the message. That's kind of how I grew into that. In in again through understanding that you tip the scales and you create some panic in people, and experience comes from poor judgment, and you just kind of, you know, go from there. Urgency again; urgency creates the fire. It creates the motivation. And um, you know, sometimes it's easy to look at the the so-called cost of change, like the time, the effort, the new learning, all of that. So it's equally important to look at the cost of not changing, like what what will happen if we don't make this move, or what happens if we don't revise our assessment practices, or what happens if we don't do this, right? It's also important to, to recognize that, you know, we could become a little bit disjointed or outdated. We could become out of touch with the world around us, you know, all of that. So urgency really is more emphasizing the clinical side of change. The patient's is emphasizing the emotional side of change it's you know how we demonstrate empathy it's how we you know understand um you know individuals being challenged with with what what lies ahead for them and for some of them change is really daunting Um, some people really like predictability and they like the sense of of consistency with which they've gone about their work for the last 10 15 20 25 years and the prospect of changing is not all that easy to handle so being empathetic and, and trying to resist the frustration and all of those different things that can, can be natural and can come out, uh, trying to resist that is really important. So, um, you know, again, some will have a lot more to do than others, but we can't ignore the fact that for some people change is daunting. So as long as, you know, things don't devolve again into stalling or a kind of passive aggressive blocking or, um, you know, it, that can happen. Um, and I've experienced that, but, I, but I'm not saying that's the norm, uh, far from it. Um, you know, we 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 have to know that the whole idea of this too shall pass. I mean, that that's kind of a passive aggressive way to resist. But so that's not the majority of people by by a long shot. Um, most of the time, what looks like resistance is often a lack of clarity. It's a lack of understanding about where the change is going. So urgency and patience always in balance. Balance the two, never one without the other. But the audience for me dictates which one is emphasized right so it's never an all or nothing it's never all about the urgency in absence of patience and it's never all about the patience in absence of urgency but it's a kind of sliding scale you know i mean are there exceptions to this sure uh you know if if the collective group has little to no experience at all with what we're talking about then obviously we're going to be mindful of that but in most cases we typically have a mix of experience and so you know, emphasizing one over the other is is not going to put everybody in a so-called deficit, if you will. Um, again, urgency for the ideas, but patience with people, I think, is how you create a compelling approach to change that simultaneously prevents individuals from feeling panicked or overwhelmed by what it is you're asking them to do. In Assessment Corner this week, I received a question about assessing collaboration. And essentially the question was, is it ever okay to assess the group, the collaborative team as a whole, or does it always have to be about the individual? Uh, collaborative learning, you'll recall, if you listen to episode 11, uh, where I interviewed Tara Barton, we were talking about collaborative learning within the context of service learning. Uh, that So that came up and we talked a little bit about that. So I wanna address this question in three parts. And the first, Part is really about what you're assessing. So first we talk about what you're assessing. Group scores really are about providing a single score to an entire group, which in many cases assumes that all the students have reached the same level of proficiency with the learning goals that were at hand. Now group scores themselves are not the issue. Uh, it's not inappropriate for all students in a group to earn the same level. It, it is inappropriate Uh, to give all the students or assign the same level to all students in a group if you haven't verified that all students have reached that level of proficiency. Um, You know, so with group projects, you might think about when it comes to especially things around academic achievement, there may be times where you'll want to add in an individual component to the group project. It doesn't have to be anything onerous, but it is an opportunity for students to Express individually the degree to which they have learned what it is they were supposed to have demonstrated with the project. So it might mean in a face to face setting, um, and of course, this becomes a little more challenging in a virtual environment or a hybrid environment. But ultimately, if the students were to submit their project, it may be immediately following that there's an individual component which could be a reflective piece where you ask the students to write a paragraph or two about um, how the project demonstrates that they have met the learning goal and some of the inferences that the teacher should notice when assessing the project. When you assess projects, you've talked about this, you use rubrics, you're making a scoring inference so you have to infer and so the student pointing that out would indicate to the teacher the degree to which they have, have learned that. Now on top of that, if you're assessing collaboration, we wanna separate that out and then think about collaboration having its own criteria. Right. So separate to the learning goals, we would have additional learning goals of collaboration. So we would have criteria that centered around, you know, uh, have they established roles and responsibilities? Uh, Do they have a process for coming to consensus? How do they resolve conflict, active listening? You know, are they gauging the the contributions of the individual's uh, commitment to the work, protocols, etc.? Like, you know, depending on the activity, you can expand or reduce that as applicable. Now all of that has to be made clear and taught explicitly. So that's why Cassandra, Nicole and I, when we wrote uh, Growing Tomorrow's Citizens in Today's Classroom, we identified collaboration on three levels. We talked about collaboration 1.0, 2.0 and 3.0. Now collaboration 1.0 is the long-standing sort of traditional approach to group work, which was just using groups as the means to an end. So, instead of individuals producing a project, we put them into a group of four. But the goal was still about the academic learning goals. It was still about content proficiency uh, and and that had kind of moved through the decades. You know, when we talk about collaboration as a 21st century competency, we're really talking about collaboration 2.0, which is where the means and ends are switching places now. I'm using content to teach you how to collaborate and collaboration 2.0 is where collaboration is the outcome. I'm wanting to teach you how to collaborate and that's what I'm assessing. What we call 3.0 is the blending of the academic standards, if you will, and the collaborative process. And, and so 3.0 we call collaborative problem solving, which is where you combine the critical thinking skills, say, of analysis with the, the social interaction of a collaborative team, and that's 3.0. So, You can still assess them separately from academic achievement, which is important, uh, and, and have those separated out so that you can make clear what is the level of proficiency and then where are they at within the collaborative process. So this leads me to the second part, which is now once we're inside the collaborative process bubble, if you will, the question was really about is there a place for group results? Can the group be assessed or is it always about the individual? I'm starting to think there's a place for group results within this bubble, because there does come a point where with whom I'm collaborating impacts my effectiveness as a collaborator. When you're part of a team, you know it, it can be challenging to isolate each individual's contribution because sometimes we play off each other. I, I mean, we can still try to do that, and I think it's good to still try to do that, but. Groups also need to take responsibility for group results, kind of like in team sports. So once you do the macro separation of academics and and collaboration, then I think we can be a little looser only from a practical standpoint. As long as you're purposeful in giving students an opportunity to work with a wide variety of students, then looking at group results may help you see some patterns. From a practical perspective, it is easier to observe groups collectively than it is to try to parse out every individual's contribution to that group. So there may also, so so students have an opportunity to work with a variety of different students. you, You may start to see some patterns. And at the same time, you might decide as a teacher that some of the teams are gelling. They're starting to find their groove. If you keep changing the groups, then it's really difficult for groups to establish kind of some norms or some habits or some you know, maybe some idiosyncrasies with which they collaborate. So you may find the balance between that. And I think as a teacher, you just you need to decide, you know, what is most favorable? Am I am I is it is it the biggest benefit to keep changing the groups or is there some benefit to some cohesion with the groups that there's an opportunity to work over and over again? Uh, with people. I don't think it's an all or nothing endeavor. I think, you know, letting groups work together multiple times and then shifting things occasionally, uh, I think is a, is a good balance there. All I'm saying is that, uh, you know, there, there can be an opportunity to observe the groups as a collective to truly watch the teamwork and, and those results as well in terms of how the team is produced. So this goes to the third part, uh, And it speaks to the larger part around equity and true inclusivity when it comes to collaborative teams. And it goes back to something that I mentioned when I was chatting with Tara in episode 11, and we were talking about collaborative learning. And in that conversation, I mentioned something that Anthony Muhammad had said in episodes two and three of the podcast, where we were talking about, you know, some of the differences in what success looks like. We were contrasting the definition of success between you know white versus non-white uh, cultures. And so Anthony said, uh, so in framing the question to Tara, I reminded her of something Anthony said, I'm gonna remind you here of what, what he said as well, and I'm quoting him, quote, Anthony said, in European culture, individual success is more important than collective success. In tropical communities, communities of color, group success is more important than individual success. Individual success can sometimes be looked at as insulting, that in some African cultures, if I stick out as a show off, I take away from the group collective, end quote. So that really stood out for me. And then talking to Tara about collaborative learning and within a service learning, it, it, it has really got me. So the timing of this question is great because I've been thinking a lot about where do group results sort of what role do they play? Where do they fit? Um, you know, being a a culturally responsive teacher, uh, creating a culturally responsive learning environment, and therefore having culturally responsive assessments, it begins with a redefining, and by redefining, I mean an expansion of what really matters. So if we can consider moving beyond the very narrow kind of Eurocentric focus that everything is always about the individual. And again, we're not talking about expanding to group reading levels or, you know, those types of, of standards that lend themselves to individual assessment. It, again, too often we view things as kind of an all or nothing and, and, and balance is usually the answer. So we're not talking about that, but talking about a way to think about, you know, within, you know, how within how within cultures is standing out seen as less than favorable and how can we begin to infuse some of that into our practice in our classroom so that our assessments and the assessment experience itself is more culturally aligned with what what many students experience at home. Listen I haven't fully flushed this idea out yet um, but I think um, well I don't think I know there is something there and and th- that i don't think is going to detract but only add to the experience of our students and and bring a kind of well-roundedness we all know the frustrations with group projects in schools and there's a lot of memes out there about you know the group project and the one student that does all the work and all of those things those are tremendous learning opportunities for our students and while i wouldn't want the group to necessarily negatively, in a, in a significant way, negatively impact a student's standing. At the same time, there are opportunities and teachable moments that may come forth as a result of those experiences. So again, I'm, I'm not, I haven't flushed all of this out yet, but I'm, I'm thinking aloud here with you. One of the unintended byproducts of the overemphasis on the individual is, is maybe the either intentional or unintentional, I don't know, the hyper-competitive environment that can can start to emerge in schools when this idea of individualized, uh, you know, get yours, um, forget about the collective, just go after yours, get your GPA, all those things. When that's taken to the extreme, you start to create this kind of hyper-competitive environment. And again, I'm not suggesting that we eliminate all individual achievement, but adding is always going to require subtracting. So if we're going to add opportunities to be more culturally responsive and inclusive and put our equity money where our equity mouths are, something is going to have to give. We're going to have to, you know, if we're going to increase the, the group collective, we're going to have to decrease a little bit of that individualistic assessment. So as I said, I'm, I'm thinking aloud here. and I'm going to flush this out a bit um, more to see where it goes. And, and I'll probably return to a future podcast and, and talk a little bit more about some of the ideas that are starting to become more clear to me. Uh, but I know there's something there. So back to the original question, uh, the first key is to be clear about what you're assessing. So separate the, the the academic achievement standards that are clearly about the individual and then separate those from anything that is about collaboration. And then once you do that, create clear, specific and transparent criteria for what effective collaboration looks like. And, uh, and again, once students develop competency with collaboration then give them the freedom to create their own protocols or their own norms or their own way of going about business but sometimes you don't know what you don't know so consider using protocols and and structures that help students at least experience what a collaborative team looks and feels like and that starts to build the habit and then you can afford them the freedom once they have some grounding in those practices And then inside the collaboration bubble so to speak consider both the individual assessment but also assessing the collective in terms of the groups to see how they're they're functioning and then i would just continue to refine your observation your exploration of how this collaborative opportunity um, plays out for students you know collaboration is one of the most important 21st century skills or critical competencies that students can develop It is going to just increase in terms of its importance. And uh, so it's something we need to pay attention to. But like I said, it's, you know, the line between the individual achievement and the group collective is something that I'm continuing to kind of think about and explore. And I'll bring that back to a future podcast once I think I have the idea a little more crystallized. That's it for today, the first solo pod in the books. Remember to follow the podcast Twitter account for updates. That account is at TomShimmerPod. My personal Twitter handle is at Tom Shimmer, so I encourage you to follow both those accounts. And also please email your questions for Assessment Corner or suggestions you have to make this a more enjoyable listening experience. The email for the podcast is tomshimmerpod at gmail.com. And don't forget to check out the YouTube channel, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, I'm going to try to expand the utility of that channel. Of course, we've got full length episodes of the podcast there. We've got the video versions of the interviews, but I'm going to try to add some different content to that channel to to make it a more user friendly kind of platform. So looking to add those features uh, in 2021. So so would encourage you to subscribe to that. Next week, my guest is going to be author, speaker and fellow Canadian Tom Hirk. Tom and I have been friends for close to 20 years. Uh, We're going to explore the topics of student behavior and school culture, so I'm really looking forward to that conversation. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, where your ratings and your subscriptions go a long way to expanding the listening audience. And of course, if you're up for it, please spread the word about the podcast to some of your colleagues or maybe through social media. I would really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone.